Ukrainians are fighting an existential fight. So it's not a question of like fighting poverty or improving the standards of living. They fight to protect, protect their land. So basically they survive. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day, seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking back at two years of war between Russia and Ukraine. At dawn on February 24th, 2022, Russian forces began firing air and missile strikes across Ukraine. Ukraine vowed to fight back. Since then, millions of Ukrainian refugees have fled the country. U.S. officials estimate total deaths and injuries on both sides have neared half a million. And both countries remain in a war economy. Today we get an update from a scholar we spoke to in late 2022, nearly a year into the war, to find out how those economies are faring. My favorite what? Favorite pie? Um, okay, my name is Konstantin Sonin. I'm a professor at the University of Chicago. My favorite pie is a lemon tart. Konstantin, good to have you back on the program. Thank you. It, it's good to be with you. So the last time we talked with you uh, was at the end of 2022, about a year into the war. Now we are two years in, and I'd like to begin with an overall sense of the economies, both in Russia and Ukraine, and how the war has affected their economic health two years in. So let's start with Russia. Can you describe the current situation there? Uh, Okay. The Russian economy is now more like a wartime economy, so basically... Uh, the Russian government invested heavily in military production, increasing military production, and it did succeed to increase the uh, number of munitions that is being produced. It seems that it was able to circumvent um, import restrictions, so Russia still has access to all these things that cannot be produced inside Russia but are necessary to produce modern weapons like chips. Uh, obviously, Russia overpays for these um, uh, f- for these inputs. Using this, all these back channels is costly, but it does seem that the Russian military industry works at capacity, and this is basically the only sector of the Russian economy that is growing. All other sectors either contracted or stagnated. So, if you look at the headline. GDP numbers, then the situation is good, but it's only good because of this expansion in the military production. But of course, military production is not good for consumption. So you could say that the Russian people live uh, worse than they lived two years ago, but the headline GDP number is higher because of the military production. So when you say worse, how would you describe living standards there today? I know inflation is a major issue. Oh, I think it's a little bit worse. It's not like a major deterioration, so like 5% worse. Also, Russian people uh, lost access to a lot of products that were available and they're popular. I mean, uh, tens of millions of Russians traveled abroad. Now, there is no option to have vacation in Europe, for example. 
millions, tens of millions of Russians would go to McDonald's, uh, but nowadays McDonald's is not operating in Russia. Still, it's not something that affects like people's core uh, well-being. It's not a huge economic crisis, but it's still um, a worse, a lower quality of living than before the war. Talk us through the impact of sanctions at this point. You touched on that earlier. It certainly seems from the outside, since the war still rages, that they haven't done much to blunt the war efforts, at least on the part of Russia. Uh, but citizens have encountered shortages. Can you give us the overall picture there? Okay, I would say that sanctions, they have an impact. They have an impact both on Russia's military effort and on uh, the way people live. So there are shortages, there are um, occasional absence of certain goods uh, in the shops, but it's not like, I mean, sanctions are not bombs. They do not affect people directly. This increased cost of living, perhaps it's contributed to inflation. It made government efforts more difficult, but it's not something that just magically ended the war. Is there a reason for that? Um, Why have embargoes been so seemingly ineffective? Oh, I would say that expected that sanctions would have like a direct effect. It's like expecting that if you pass a new laws, a new law, then you will immediately see a drop a drop in crime. Of course, sanctions help, but it's not like it's not a weapon. Sanctions is something that makes life difficult. It made life difficult. It basically makes a possible growth in Russia impossible, but it's not something that just stops the economy. It just makes going forward harder. And what about Russia's oil economy? Uh, There have been embargoes, pledges by EU nations uh, not to use Russian oil. How have those played out over the last two years? Uh, Okay, some of it, some of these embargoes work. For example, Europe, Europe drastically cut the consumption of the Russian gas, and Russia didn't find another market for, uh, for natural gas. So basically, natural gas production dropped, and the export revenues from uh, gas exports dropped. But it's not the same thing for oil. There are still there are big countries that buy Russian oil, China and India. These are primary. Uh, customers. So this embargo obviously had an effect. Everything that Russian government does is now more costly than before. But it's not, again, it's not something that stopped Russia's oil revenues, unfortunately. Hmm. All right, let's move to Ukraine. Uh, What is the overall economic picture there after two years of war? Okay, the Ukrainian economy uh, grew in the previous year. It was a increase in 5%, 5%. It's actually a big number. 2023? Yes, right. Okay. Uh, of course, this is related to the low point of 2022 when the Ukrainian economy was affected by uh, the Russian invasion. Again, of course, what happens in Ukraine, uh, the in the Ukrainian economy, it's very much driven by the uh, investment in military production by expansion of the milita- military industrial sector of Ukraine. In Russia, it was hugely developed before the war. In Ukraine, it's being developed uh, during the war. So the situation in Ukraine is uh, is very unfortunate. 
there are still millions of refugees in Europe from Ukraine, but it's, it's improving. How has Putin gone after Ukraine's economy? I know he's targeted uh, infrastructure, exports. Can you walk us through that? Okay, we do not know for sure because uh, Russia used missiles against Ukrainian infrastructure, but a lot of these missiles, they're not like precise weapons, so they um, they eventually hit uh, all kind of apartment buildings. For example, yesterday, uh, they hit apartment buildings in Kyiv and Kharkiv. So some people think that this is like a war of terror to force Ukrainian population to be very unhappy with the war. Other people say that they actually target energy infrastructure objects it does seem that there was an idea to target energy infrastructure in Ukraine. It did not work last year, it did not work as Putin intended, meaning that although, of course, every missile hit is a problem, every missile hit is a danger, but it's not something that stopped Ukraine from um, from fighting back and from Ukrainian people from leaving. So they do attack Ukrainian energy infrastructure, but they were not able to break it last year. This year, with the better air defense that Ukraine has now, it's even less effective. Last time we talked, uh, again, a little over a year ago, uh, I mentioned a World Bank report saying that extreme poverty in Ukraine was likely to rise tenfold in 2022 and into 2023. Uh, Did that prediction prove correct? Uh, okay, I have I have not seen data that confirm that would confirm this, but I do think that Ukraine is basically Ukrainians are fighting an existential fight, so it's not a question of like fighting poverty or improving the standards of living. They fight to protect protect their land, so basically they survive. They are not. I mean, they do not have poverty that actually threatens their lives, so uh, it's. The question is about when the war ends, not about kind of quality of living during the war. What role have Ukraine's neighbors and other nations had in propping up its economy? Uh, What kind of economic assistance is it currently receiving? Okay, the main focus is, of course, on uh, military help. This is what Ukraine wants, and this is what it receives from its neighbors. Another thing is that countries, big countries that neighbor Ukraine, Germany and Poland, they accepted uh, millions of refugees. Uh, They gave people the ability to work, which means that they could send money to those people who who stay in Ukraine. And so this is an indirect support. So the direct financial help is big from the European Union. It's It's not huge by any standard, but it's important for Ukraine. So I think these two things, transfers from European unions, plus uh, the possibility of employment for refugees, so the possibility to send money back to Ukraine, this is the help from the neighbors. Is it possible to say how long Ukraine's economy can kind of limp along um, and what happens if aid stops flowing, uh, as some in Congress want? Oh, I, I, I think that if all foreign aid would stop right now, that Ukraine will still survive, will still fight back. But this will mean 
tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands more victims. It will, uh, the Ukrainian army will have far more, um, for more losses. There will be much more losses and more suffering among the civilian population. So I do not think that the existence of the independent Ukrainian state is hinged upon the foreign aid, any kind of aid. But it certainly uh, brings the end of the war closer. So like the military help is important in that, is in that Ukraine defeats the Russian invasion and there will be a durable peace. Well, so Konstantin, uh, how does this end? Uh, last time we talked, you predicted the end of Putin, but he certainly seems to have staying power. Um, okay, I, not- I predict, frankly, I predicted the end of Putin in two years, so there is still still one year to go. All right, all right, yeah. fair, fair enough. Um, he certainly seems to have staying, staying power, uh, not least of which is by eliminating his critics. Uh, so what do you see in the future for Russia? Okay, I do not think that the current state in which Russia find, uh, found itself is sustainable. A country cannot live and develop with this kind of the international isolation. It cannot live and develop with this kind of draconian laws on the books. It cannot live in a situation in which it generates like all the people of talent and all the people who do creative work have to leave Russia. I think this is not sustainable, so this will eventually end. And when it ends, then a new government more responsible than Putin's government will negotiate the withdrawal troop from uh, Ukraine and will end the international isolation of Russia. Hmm. Is there anything that has surprised you over the last year, two years? in terms of how the economies of both countries have gotten through this war? Uh, Frankly, I was sort of surprised by the way people treat economists. So people think that uh, an economy is something that you could just like switch off, that there is something you turn off the lights and the economy uh, stop existing. But we know for sure that this is not the case. Country, countries could survive for many years, for decades, in a very dire situation economically. So I do not think that economy by itself could be a source of a collapse. Like a, when we say that an economy collapsed, we mean typically that the state collapses because people are unhappy about the economy. So. I know I lived through a collapse, through the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it it was not like literally the economy stopped working, but people were uh, so unhappy about the government presiding over this economy that they stopped listen, listening to the government. So I think that this will eventually happen in Russia. Again. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> again. So as you have watched what's happening, uh, again, is is there anything that has surprised you about how it has played out? Okay, I'm, it's sort of, it's sort of, um, I don't know, it's like a nightmarish to watch this day by day, like for the whole 2023, basically for many months, the Russian troops were attacking Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian uh, defenses. There are tens of thousands of Russian soldiers that were slaughtered during this. 
and it's as if everyone is seeing this nightmare, but nobody could stop this. So I'm just do not understand this. Like new groups of people arrive, they're sent to battle, they're slaughtered, new people arrive. So I read this in history books, but I never see, I never thought that you could see this like in the real time. Like you could see the same general who received new troops, send them to death, receive new troops, send them to death again. Yeah, that sort of was a surprising experience. Has it surprised you at all the resiliency of both economies, both Ukraine and Russia? No, no, that, that's that's not. I was not surprised. I mean, I uh, I read. I do not remember the uh, the war in Vietnam, the United States war against Vietnam. Obviously, Vietnam Vietnamese economy was destroyed many times over compared to the Ukrainian economy, and still uh, and still they were not surrendering. So these things, like you could do a lot of bad things to the economy. You could make um, life of people living hell, and still a country would not surrender. A country will keep fighting. So I think the expectations that just like an onslaught, bombings, missile attacks on Ukraine would result in uh, economy collapsing, these expectations were uh, not not real, not realistic to start with. Konstantin Sonen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but through rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind the political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI Communications team. I'm Tess Vigeland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.